how powerful the Word of God is. And here, a passage that we read and recited can you know, transform someone like that and, um, and have us see things a little bit more clearly and also be challenged uh, as well. I'd like to, us to turn our attention back again to Romans chapter 15. We're making our way through. I don't want to lose any opportunities to keep moving forward. Next week, Arnold Fruchtenbaum will be with us. <clears throat> so uh, you'll love to hear him. He's going to speak on the, uh, the basis for the second coming of Messiah. But I'd like to turn your attention to chapter 15, verses 14 through 22. As Paul draws this letter to a close, he says, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, competent to instruct one another. I have written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Messiah to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Spirit of God. Therefore, I glory in Messiah in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Messiah has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Elycrium, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Messiah. It has always been my ambition to proclaim the gospel where Messiah was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. These, this section here says so much about the believers in Rome. A congregation that Paul has not visited yet, but has heard some things about. As we'll see in chapter 16, there are individuals in this congregation that he is fully aware of. And he sends greetings to them. So he knows something about what's happening in Rome, but he's never been there or met them personally. <clears throat> and in this section, he tells us a little something about what has impressed him, about what he knows of the believers in Rome. On the one hand, we might look at these passages and conclude these are the marks of a solid, well-established congregation of believers. Because today is Father's Day, there's another way to look at these verses as well. And that is, if we remember that congregations are the sum total of the individuals that make it up. In other words, people don't go around and say what a wonderful congregation Beth Ariel is unless they see individuals, come to know individuals in the congregation in whom they see those good qualities about which they attribute to the congregation as a whole. So it's imperative that we as individuals reflect these characteristics if we want Beth Ariel to be known by them. A congregation is not an abstract entity. It is persons. It is people. 
That's why we have said over and over again, when in the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, when the Scripture might say, or Paul might write to the church at, the word church, ecclesia, means called out ones. It refers not to a building. It refers not to the place in which the individuals gather. It refers to the individuals themselves. We never go to congregation. We are the congregation. How often do we say to each other, are you going to congregation today? Are you going to church today? And that's uh, so totally contrary to what Paul thinks. We are the congregation. We may going, be going to a facility. We may be going to a building located at 22222 Sadakoi Avenue or Street or Road, whatever it is in Los Angeles here. But it is not anything other than brick and mortar and wood and glass and carpeting. We are the congregation of God here in this local area and the folks downstairs. So when we talk about, in this passage, what he sees at the congregation in Rome, he's talking about what he has seen in individuals, in their lives, how they've been changed and how they live. So it is of the utmost importance that we live in light of the truths we know. For then otherwise, we are not being the people of God God would have us to be. Now I think things start at the top and work themselves down. First and foremost, the leadership of our congregation, the leadership of this body needs to exemplify these qualities. But it's not just the leadership at the top. The men in our congregation need to exhibit these qualities as models for everyone else. That's not to say the women in our congregation ought not to. But there is something about men that is critical to the ongoing work of the body of Messiah. Certainly when we look at any congregation, women are right there in the heart of things. And certainly doing a great deal. That's true in our congregation, I would say probably most uh, gatherings of believers across the country. But when men take up the mantle, and when men exhibit the work of God in their lives, when men take responsibility for the ongoing ministries that occur and they jump in, then something, I think, unique and special begins to happen. On this Father's Day, I would particularly like the men, although all of us should hear God's word, to pay close attention to these words, for they are of the utmost importance to all of us, but certainly to us. Take a look at verse 14. First of all, Paul's writing a personal letter. I know it sounded like a sermon, a very long sermon. Or it read like a theological treatise. And it certainly was that. It's almost as if, if you turn to chapter 1, Paul gets a little distracted by all the theological ideas that are in his mind. He says in verse 1 of chapter 1, I, Paul, a servant of Messiah, called to be an apostle. He's telling us who he is. Set apart for the good news. The good news he proclaimed before through the prophets. God proclaimed through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He said, tells us he's writing to those believers who are, who are at Rome. Verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Set, set apart ones. Grace and peace to you. 
Look at verse 8. He says, first, I thank my God through Messiah for all of you. Because of your faith that has been reported. Remember, he's not been there. That's been reported all over the world. He says in verse 11, I long to see you. He says in verse 14, I'm obligated to see you because I'm obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, to proclaim the good news. And I'm not ashamed of this good news. And then he says in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. And he goes off on his theological ideas that continues really up until this part in chapter 15. In other words, if you look at chapter 1 one more time, he says, I am not ashamed of the good news. For in the good news is the righteousness of God revealed. And then if you turn to chapter 15, he says, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness and complete in knowledge and competent to instruct one another. That's really where the letter goes. Everything in between has been something of a side trail, though certainly of central concern to Paul, that he would help to explain what it is they are a part of. Because there is no apostle on the scene in Rome. These believers came to faith as recorded in Acts chapter 2 when they celebrated Pentecost celebrated Shavuot and the Spirit of God descended and those from Rome went back to Rome. They shared their faith with those they knew and the congregation in Rome is growing and it's having an impact in Roman society. Paul now is writing them. He wants to get there. He wants to visit with them. We'll see why in a moment. But he then writes to explain a little further what they are now a part of. But he basically wants to tell them, you guys are awesome. And what I hear about you is wonderful. But let me explain some things to you which he has explained. Now, after his lengthy explanation in chapter 15, he says, So therefore, my brothers, who I'm a part of, this very endearing term, he says, these are things that I know about you. These are things that would be wonderful to be known about Beth Ariel. These are things that would be wonderful to be known and exhibited in each one of our lives, but particularly the men in our congregation this Father's Day. Look, first of all, at verse 14. He says that you yourselves are full of goodness. That's the first thing he characterizes this congregation by. That it's a congregation that's known for its goodness. Now earlier Paul said there is no one good, quoting from the Psalms in Romans chapter 3. There's no one good, no one thinks anything good, no one says anything good, no one does anything that's right. In other words, he's trying to explain we are in deep trouble. And unless God does something miraculous, does something on an interventional kind of way, we are of all people most miserable and we are headed in the very wrong direction. So he's telling us that we don't merely need advice. We really need intervention. And so oftentimes I think of medical doctors. And when there is a crisis medically... And you're taken to the ER or the paramedics come to you. The last thing you want them to tell you is, well, you know what's going on here. You did this, this, and the other. And unless we do this, that, and this, you are, you know, not going to make it. We don't want advice. We're not really interested in all that's happening. We really don't care. What we really need is intervention that's going to save our life. I'll never forget a moment when we had bought some cut-go knives. 
And I always thought I was a pretty, you know, careful individual. And I had one of those serrated spatula kind of things. And I was separating these, like, uh, fish cakes or something like that. They were all frozen. So I have my hand on top, and I'm going like this. And the first one goes through. And I'm trying to be careful. It slipped, cut my ring finger. Well, I don't want to get too graphic, but it was very colorful in the kitchen. And... And my, you know, and I'm saying, Mary Lou, Mary Lou. She's going, what? What do you want now? What's the wrong? And I said, I'm dying. I'm going to bleed to death. She says, oh, you always exaggerate. You're always so dramatic, you know. And so finally, we called the paramedics and they came. And they saw, they said, just hold your hand up. And they're looking, my, my wedding ring. It's one of the reasons I don't wear my wedding ring. But I had my wedding ring on there. The, my finger's swelling. They're pulling on the ring. And I've lost some nerve damage. So there's, oh, it's always hurting me and when things hit it. But anyway, uh, the fellow's there telling me, hold the hand up. He's squeezing the thing. So what is your name? I said, oh, it's Gary Dershinsky. Okay. And where were you born? I said, oh, in New Jersey. And, you know, and he's going on and on like this. And I said, sir. I've answered that question four or five times now. You know what the answer is. Just get me to... Just calm down, sir. Everything will be all right. Just want to make sure you're okay. So your name again is... You know? And he just... You know, and all I wanted was intervention. I wanted them to get the ring off my finger. I wanted them to get me to the hospital. I wanted them to sew up the fair. I wanted everything just to be well. I didn't want advice. I certainly didn't want to be questioned about who I am or may not be. But I wanted simply them to do what I needed to do to save my finger and my life. <laughs> and, what, and what Paul is saying is there's no one good. And therefore we are in need of intervention. We're not just in need of advice. Do better. You know, uh, pray harder. Uh, think different thoughts. You know, we just go through all these kinds of things. We need God to do a work in us that results in those things. Those things do not result in much. Some things, but it doesn't result in much. It's the other way around. It has to be God's love invading us, turning us on to him that results in us saying, I can't wait to read his word. I can't wait to spend some time talking with him. I can't wait to come to service. I can't wait to lift my hands in praise or clap my hands in praise and to sing out to him. Dare I say it. I can't wait to come and stand in the congregation. Stand in the congregation and give him praise. It doesn't work the other way around. It works by God doing something of an interventional kind of way. If that's a word or not, I really don't know. But you know what I'm saying. God needs to do something. And when he does something, then we might be good. And that's what Paul is saying. He says here, verse 14, that you are full of goodness. By the way, one of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, love, joy, kindness, Goodness, self-control, faithfulness. So there were there eight gifts there? Eight fruit of the Spirit or so? Nine. Nine fruit of the Spirit. This is never very good in man. But one of them is goodness. Why was the congregation at Rome full of goodness? Because the Holy Spirit had taken control of their lives. It's not because they happen to do things better. It's because God had done something great in their lives that they yielded themselves to. It was a manifestation of God's presence 
in their midst. And thus when he says you are full of goodness, what he means to say is you're full of the presence of the Spirit of God in your midst. We can look good to one another, don't get me wrong. But what God wants us to do, as Yeshua says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Not so that they will say what good individual this person is. But they want to see something beyond us to that which has enabled us to be as good as we might be. And thus that the Lord would be glorified. Paul tells us in Ephesians that this is the reason, by the way, that he saved you. He did not save you so you could go to heaven. I'll never forget listening to Billy Graham one time. And he said, if God was in the business of saving people to bring them to heaven, he'd arm every evangelist with a gun. And every time a person came forward and said, I asked the Lord into my life, bang, enjoy his presence forever. (laughs) That's not why God has saved us. He has saved us. Well, if you want to take a look in Ephesians chapter 1, I think is where it is. Ephesians, right after 2 Corinthians chapter 2, excuse me. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Messiah to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So why did God save us? So that we would do good works that He has prepared in advance for us to do. We are here on this earth for the number of years that we are once we come to know the Lord, know the Lord, because He has a work for us to do, which is a good work and to manifest goodness. When He writes to this congregation, He says, You are full of goodness. Everyone knows it. And everyone has experienced it. Everyone has seen it. So here's the big question. What is it that we are doing that others might say, He is good and He's good because of His God? What are we doing that's attracting people to see the goodness of God? I'm not talking about our children, as important as they are, and Dan mentioned to us this morning. That's only the first line of attack is your family, your husband, your wife, your, your uh, son, your daughter, your mother, your father. That's the first line of attack. If we don't get beyond there, we will not get into the world. All we will do is embrace our family and pat ourselves on the back that our family is doing so well. But look at Paul. Paul's desire was to get to Rome. He needed to go out from where he was. And what does the scripture say? Beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. What are you doing that others, not just those that live in your immediate confine, but others see your goodness? So that others might say, we have heard that you are full of goodness. That's a hard one, isn't it? And men in our congregation, what are you doing? That others would say, there is goodness here. We should not have any problem with our young people. We should have no problem at all in getting people to say, sign me up to help our young people hear the word of God. You have to do something in order for goodness to be seen. 
by others. We should have no problem in getting people to help out with our sound. We should have no problem in getting people to participate in our dance. We should have no problem in having people light the candles, read the scripture, pray when called upon, serve the Lord's Supper. We should have no problems there at all. We should never have to get up and say, we have a need here, would you help? We should be being asked, what can I do to help? Where can I serve? Because if we're not serving, we're not manifesting goodness. You could look good. I mean, even a criminal looks pretty good on trial. You see how they dress. And all of a sudden you think to yourself, can that person really do that? Look how nice he dresses. We can look good, but it's a big difference in doing good that others see. And what Paul said is, you are overflowing with goodness. And so we need to ask ourselves that hard question. Would Paul say that of me? And would he say that of us? Here's the second thing he says. Not only in chapter 15, let me come back to it. In chapter 15, verse 14, does he say that this congregation was complete in knowledge? He says they were, uh, excuse me, not only full of goodness, but complete in knowledge. The word knowledge here does not mean they were academically astute. It doesn't mean that they were theologically correct about all of their things. The word knowledge here means they were living out what they believed. And they sought to do it fully and completely to their uttermost ability. They did not just want to hear what Paul had to say. They wanted what Paul had to say to impact and transform their lives. And isn't that what we all want? We didn't come to know the Lord so that we would be the same as we were before we knew the Lord. We came to know him because we realized we were ones who were alienated from him. We realized that we were ones who were sinners and we certainly wanted to be accepted by him and we wanted our lives to change. And I'll never forget when I invite the Lord into my life and various times along the way when I got a clearer glimpse of who I am. Tears would run down my eyes and i say, I can't believe I'm struggling with the same thing. I can't believe that I'm still dealing with this or that. And there's always going to be things to deal with in, our, in this side of heaven. Because we're always growing. And there's always a need. That's how pervasive sin is in our lives. And how powerful it is as well. The wages of sin is death. And you know those moments when you've really experienced that death. You know those moments in your life when you said, I just can't deal with this any longer. And you know you're brought to your knees and perhaps with tears. Because you want just not knowledge about God, but you want that knowledge to transform and change us in a vital and significant way. He tells us not only was this congregation known because it was full of goodness, that it was complete in knowledge, living out the truths that were being articulated, but he also tells us that they were competent to instruct one another. This word to instruct is a very interesting word because it means really to warn one another. When Paul gathered after his, what was the second 
third missionary journey, and he was heading back to Jerusalem. He stopped off at Ephesus, and he gathered the elders on the beach. He spent three days with them, I think it was, and then he gathered with them on the beach. He prayed with them. And in his prayer with them, he also gave them a brief message. And he reminded them that for three years, he had warned them of the things he had taught. That's the word that's here. He instructed them. And so what he's saying here is that this congregation was such a loving, caring congregation to one another. And was so knowledgeable of God's truth that they were able to help each other deal with the problems and circumstances and situations they had faced. And so when he writes to this congregation, he commends them for that. Let me move on just very quickly as we, I bring this section to a close. I just want you to see some really neat things that Paul has to say. He tells us in verse 15, I love this about Paul. He's so gracious. You know, one of the things we all struggle with when we don't like something, you know, we can't say it tactfully. You know, we just simply blow it right, you know, between the eyes. I don't like this. I don't like that or whatever it is. Look what Paul does. There were a lot of things Paul didn't like. But look what he writes here. He, he told them some really tough things. Michelle had made reference to one that we are to accept one another as Messiah has accepted us and not to be judgmental about disputable matters, right? There were some really heavy uh, things that he was drawing and very practical things. And now look what he says. I have written you quite boldly on some points. I mean, talk about tact, you know? He just doesn't say, I've scolded you about this. I've told you you should be doing this. What? He says, you know, I've written boldly about uh, some of these points as if to remind you. See, they're already he's telling them, I know you're aware of these things. You know, and I've written you boldly. I only meant to remind you of what you already know. Very tactful, sensitive, caring sort of way rather than just, I don't like this. And you need to change. You need to do this differently. You need to, whatever it may be. But very tactful and very loving. And I thought that was a kind of a neat thing that I wanted to get off on. But we don't need to. It's, very, it's just kind of a neat thing to see. And then he says this. That he was a minister, a servant of Messiah to the Gentiles. And this is what's really unique here. He says, with the priestly duty of proclaiming the good news. You don't read that anywhere else. Paul never speaks of himself as fulfilling a priestly duty, you know. He, the, Peter will write about the believers being a kingdom of priests. I understand that. But Paul says something a little different here. He says he has a priestly duty of proclaiming the good news so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God. Paul sees himself like the Levitical priesthood. But, you know, I think Paul is drawing from, take a look at this, see what you think. In Isaiah chapter 66... Isaiah makes a very stunning kind of statement here at the end of his uh, book. And speaking about the new heavens and the new earth, he, he speaks about God restoring Israel. And um, he says, for example, in chapter 66, verse 10, Rejoice with Jer Jerusalem. Be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her. Talking about Jerusalem, talking about the Jews. For this is what the Lord says, I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of the Gentiles like a flooding stream. As a mother, verse 13, comforts her child, so I will comfort you and you will be comforted, 
over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice. He's speaking to Israel. But then look at verse 18. And he speaks of judgment on the Gentiles, right? He says, and I, because of their actions and their imaginations, are about to come and gather all the nations and tongues. But look at this. They will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them. He's talking about the Gentiles. And I will send some of those who survive to the Gentiles, to Tarshish, to the Libyans, uh, to the Lydians, to Tubal, Greece, to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the Gentiles. Paul sees himself as sort of a forerunner proclaiming God's word to the Gentiles. This is what he's saying in Romans. But then look at this. He says, and they will bring all your brothers. Talking about the Gentiles bringing the Jews, right? All your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain, to Jerusalem in chariots and wagons on mules. And they will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonial clean Vessels, And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites. Paul sees himself in this prophetic kind of ministry in which he will be bringing, he was called to bring the good news to the Gentiles. And like Isaiah says, that the Gentiles will be made like an offering given to the Lord in the temple and will be set apart, sanctified as holy objects, Paul sees himself fulfilling that kind of priestly duty. That his job was to proclaim the good news. What is the good news? That without the intervention of God, we are lost. That's the good news. That God has done something to intervene in our lives that we need for Him to intervene in in order for us to know Him, to have peace, to be fulfilled, to have meaning in our life, and ultimately to be with Him forever. Paul said, that is what my calling is as a priest among Israel, to bring the message to the Gentiles that they might be set apart as an offering to God that would be offered to Him in giving Him praise, honor, and glory. What a neat idea. What a neat way of thinking. Can you think of your ministry as a priestly duty? That our job here is not just to play our instruments. It's a priestly duty to bring people into the very presence of God and to help them become the holy objects that are worthy of being in God's presence. That's what Paul is saying. That we come, we don't just dance, but we are leading each other into the very presence of God and helping each other to become set apart unto God as holy objects before Him. Paul saw his work, not as a missionary going helter-skelter here and there and everywhere, but as a priestly responsibility of service to the Almighty God. And notice, Paul's calling was to go where the good news had not gone before. So let me close with these final thoughts. First of all, Paul, when he went on his first journey, he was sent out by a congregation in Antioch of Syria. And that congregation in Antioch of Syria, that'd be over here near Lebanon, Antioch of Syria, they prayed for Paul regularly. They sent money to Paul regularly. They even sent individuals from the congregation to go with Paul. Mark, Barnabas, later Silas, Timothy, all come out of this congregation in Antioch. 
Paul then goes on his first missionary journey to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. This congregation supported them along the way. Money, food, individuals, prayer. Now Paul comes back. He wants to go further. He wants to go out to Macedonia and to Greece. As he goes, he visits these congregations. They join him in the work of prayer, of ministry, of financial support, of food. And he goes a little further. Once he's in Macedonia, where he reaches out to congregations like at Thessalonica, Philippi, Corinth, and some of these congregations in that region, it is the congregation at Philippi that now supports him. They send workers with him. They pray for him. They give him money and food. The congregation here is too far removed. He will not get that support in time. They can pray, but the tangible support is too far removed from him. So what does he do? He sets up another base here in, in uh, Europe, in Macedonia, from Philippi. What is Paul's goal? He tells us. It's Spain. That's his goal. His goal was not Rome. He wanted to get there, but only to meet them. Only to say, how are you doing, but not to stay there. Why? Because the congregation's there, and he was called to go where the gospel had not been proclaimed before. So he gets to Rome. Why? Because the congregation at Philippi, the congregation in Antioch, is too far removed from Spain. So he wants the believers at Rome to be praying for him, feeding him, providing money, and providing the... The, the resources for the individuals that can help him bring the gospel forward. It continues this chain of events. Isn't that kind of neat to think about? I had never thought of that before until sitting down and preparing this. Never thought of that. That Paul realized the complexity of what he did. So this is where I land on this. Number one, it is incredibly important to plan things. It's important to strategize and to plan. That's not to say all our plans are going to work out, but you need to have a plan. You can't just enter the world and hope things fall into place. You have to have a game plan. And Paul saw that the game plan that God had for him is the best way he could think of and the way God blessed him on his work. But the second thing is, even though you have a plan, you've got to be flexible. Paul, remember, in Asia Minor, wanted to go north, south, west, and then he had a vision of somebody from Macedonia telling him, let's go over here. So Paul said, I guess that's where we go. He was ready to change course. His plan was to get to Rome, but not as a prisoner. His plan was to get to Rome, not making uh, a challenge to the court in Rome about how he was mistreated as a citizen. He just wanted to go there. But God's way was different than he had anticipated. So you need to plan. We need to plan what we're doing here at Beth Ariel. We need to have a strategy. You can't do that unless you have people who are ready to say, this is our priestly duty to proclaim the good news. You can't have people who will have this as a priestly duty unless the work of God has so riveted their heart that they're full of goodness. Ready to serve others because what God has done. Individuals that are complete in knowledge, wanting to put into practice what they learn and are not just comfortable in hearing God's word over and over and over again and thinking that that does the trick. Listen, I'm all for everyone coming here Sunday morning hearing me speak, but if we don't go out and do something with what you're hearing, there's no point in coming. I'm all for Bible study fellowship, but if all you do is go to Bible study fellowship for the last 30 years and it doesn't have an impact on you and the people around you, there's no point in having it. 
You can sit down and read the Bible. Go get a commentary. Read through it. I'm not trying to put any of these things down. I'm only trying to say we're to be full of goodness, not just having each other's company. We're to be competent in knowledge and able to help one another, not just talk about the things we learn and find interesting. Although I love to learn, I love to find things interesting, I can talk all day about them. But there comes a moment when we say our life needs to change. It needs to be counted for something. And let me tell you this. Paul said he was going to work till he dropped. Paul never thought of retirement from this. He's an old man right now. He is going to die in about four or five years. But his thought is not, maybe now it's time to hunker down. Put my feet up and enjoy the comforts of my society or my culture or my world. Paul saw now is the time to get rolling and serving. And so his dream was not to go to Rome so he, can, he could retire on one of his villas. His goal was to go from there to Rome, uh, to Spain. And from there, who knows what his dreams might have been. As long as we are on this world, we are servants of God. And therefore are in need of serving Him and bringing the good news to the ends of the earth. Our job is not complete until every individual hears the good news. Yeshua said, go into all the world, proclaim the good news. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age, not just till retirement day, but to the end of your age and to the end of your life. We are always to be serving as best we can. And that's what Paul saw. His plan was to be a servant from beginning to end. His strategy was to get others involved, supporting him and helping him in that task. His longevity in doing this was to the end of his days. And so he did. Even to those that held him prisoner in Rome. And even to those who saw him perish and die. So on this Father's Day, as I said, I'm really trying to draw attention to all of us, but particularly to the men in our congregation, we need to take inventory of our lives. Do we manifest the goodness that others see by what we do? Are we living out what we know is true in God's word? Are we encouraging one another on in the faith? Helping each other, warning each other. Are we proclaiming not what we think about things, but the good news itself, as Paul was. Do we see our life and ministry as a priestly duty, a holy responsibility that God has placed upon us for us to fulfill to the best of our ability and by His grace? Are we planning, setting apart that time that we can be engaged in service and ministry? Are we supporting others? It's really exciting that Beth Ariel supports our missionaries and having a missionary team come together to help us become more aware of that ongoing support that goes out as well as the ongoing need is very exciting indeed. And I'm very grateful for everyone involved in that ministry. And thus Paul says, and let me just conclude here, in verse 22, this is why I have often been hindered from coming to you because of his ongoing service and ministry and waiting for all the things to get set in order. So I pray for me, as well as for all of us, that we might manifest these wonderful things that Paul is speaking about. 
And in manifesting them, others will say, have you heard of Beth Ariel and what they're doing? Have you seen what's going on in that, those people's lives and how they're touching other people's lives? I don't know right offhand right now at this moment in what ways we will do that. But there's 100, 150 of us. We all have ideas. We all have desires. We need to bring them together and ask God to lead us and guide us and grant us wisdom as we seek to make a significant difference, particularly among the Jewish people in this area, but among all people that we have opportunity to present the good news to. Let's pray. And as we